Your daily dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth, a great nation where, according to Joel Kotkin, who is one of the leading urban scholars in America, there is deep change going on in blue cities, a rejection of extreme progressivism. Uh, That happened recently with a mayor's election in Houston, Texas. It has happened with changes at the question of legalized drugs or open drug use in Portland and San Francisco and elsewhere. And uh, why is this happening and how can other conservatives or moderates or people who reject the extreme progressivism, some of which is, yes, funded by George Soros uh, backed uh, prosecutors and uh, people who are undermining our criminal justice system. How can people in the center who want to uphold that system and want to uphold the ideals of public safety, how can they do an even better job uh, building uh, political power? We will talk with Joel Kotkin about that on the Michael Medved Show. First, we're going to speak to Governor Chris Christie, who uh, is running third in the New Hampshire primaries. Uh, He'll almost surely not run in the top three in Iowa. What is the strategy for his campaign going forward? And what does he believe the uh, Republicans can use as a strategy to win the presidency with someone other than Donald Trump? We'll be speaking to Governor Christie about that and with Peter Coy of the New York Times uh, talking about the uh, good news uh, for the economy and why it is that it seems not to register uh, with uh, people in the United States who tell pollsters still that the United States is on the wrong track. A uh, 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. Uh, first up, there's a, um, a story that we have to cover because it's important, uh, but it's a horrible story. And uh, it's, it's not the kind of news that uh, anyone, anyone can possibly celebrate or look at with anything other than horror and regret. It turns out that three of the hostages who had been kidnapped by Hamas and were being held uh, were killed today. And they were killed in an accidental, unintentional shooting by troops of the Israel Defense Forces. They... uh, The IDF troops apparently mistook the three hostages who were killed, all of them young males, mistook them for terrorists during operational activity in the Gaza City neighborhood of Shajaya. That is what uh, IDF spokesperson Admiral Daniel Hagari said uh, this evening. Uh, It's this evening Israel time. Uh, the three victims include Yotam Chaim, who was abducted from uh, the Kibbutz Kfar Aza on October 7th, and Samar Talalka, who was abducted uh, from near Am on the same day. The third hostage, uh, the family asked that 
he not be identified. Uh, following the incident, when uh, these three uh, people who had apparently either escaped or they were abandoned by uh, fleeing uh, Hamas terrorists who uh, were no longer there restraining them. In any event, uh, uh, they were shot by mistake almost immediately. They examined the bodies and suspected that they might be hostages. Uh, they were then sent back to Israel, brought back to Israel for examination where it was determined indeed that they had been among the hostages. The uh, IDF added that an investigation was immediately opened into the circumstances of the event, of course. So far, the details of what exactly happened have not yet been discussed with the public. Uh, Minister Benny Gantz, who is part of the war cabinet, offered condolences to the grieving families writing on Friday night, tonight, that he was heartbroken upon hearing the news. Our troops are carrying out deeply complicated operations. The most important this country has known, he wrote on X. The pain that follows this war is now heavier than ever. Uh, according to the Forum of Missing Families that has been formed to speak on behalf of the hostages and their families, Talalkat was 25. He had been the oldest of 10 children and was reportedly wounded by Hamas gunfire when he was initially kidnapped in October, on October 7th. Chaim, the other hostage uh, that has been identified, was a lifelong drummer who had been in his home during Hamas's attack on southern Israel when the terrorists set his home on fire. After he opened the window in order to breathe to escape the smoke, he was abducted. Uh, the, uh, the three mistakenly killed hostages had likely either escaped or were abandoned by their captors, uh, so says the uh, Jerusalem Post. During the last few days or this day, they reached the point they reached said IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari. Unfortunately, the tragic results of the event ended in their deaths. When asked if the abductees raised their hands or if they shouted for help in Hebrew, Hagari said, we are in the first hours after this event. We are still with the families after informing them. We are updating the public. He vowed that there will be full transparency on what exactly happened, calling it a tragic error. Uh, uh, obviously, the the reaction from any people of goodwill anywhere around the world will be terrible to this, and it does raise a question. Uh, the uh, Israelis uh, have agreed. Uh, the Jake Sullivan, the president's uh, national security advisor is in Israel now. He met recently with uh, Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, who is the head of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, they are trying to make plans for what to do after the war. But uh, the, the question that really rises here, and it's a profound question, with all of this pain and this horror on, on every side, 
Uh, what about those people here in the United States? There are about 100 people, demonstrators, from a group called Jewish Voices for Peace, which is an extreme left-wing group. It is almost exclusively funded by George Soros, uh, the same funder, not a great friend of Israel. And they stopped traffic on a bridge here in Seattle last night. They stopped traffic for about an hour to demand an immediate ceasefire. Uh, the, the question would be, uh, what does Israel do to protect its citizens if there is an immediate ceasefire and Hamas is still operational and the leaders of Hamas are promising that there will be more attacks and more attacks and more attacks unless there is a decisive victory and dismantling of some of the terror tunnels and more uh, the uh, the question becomes then how, how do you settle a war like this when the other side has no interest in making any concessions or offers to negotiate at all uh, meanwhile, the Republicans have done something wonderful, and that's great to hear. What? They've chosen a very unconventional and amazing candidate to replace George Santos. We'll tell you about that and more coming up on The Medved Show. Kudos for having the best show on radio. The Michael Medved Show. Well, uh, a Russian dance from uh, the Nutcracker Ballet, which is one of the joys of the season. And before we get back to the rest of the news, which isn't all bad, it has some very positive developments to it. There is one very positive development, and it, it just made me smile so broadly this morning when I read about it, uh, is the selection by the Republican parties of uh, Nassau County and of Queens County. That's to select a replacement uh, to run as the Republican candidate to replace George Santos. And I know everybody's heartbroken that George Santos is no longer in Congress. They're having an election in February, and it's a special election to choose this crucial seat in Congress. And a former congressman, uh, Tom Swosey, has already been chosen as the candidate for the Democrats. The candidate for the Republicans is a little bit of a surprise. Her name is uh, Mazi Melissa Pilip, and uh, she is flat out remarkable. Uh, the uh, uh, cityandstatenewyork.com uh, gives you some background on who this lady is. First of all, uh, she is a former paratrooper uh, with a absolutely glittering military background. Uh, she is the mother of seven. Uh, she is deeply religious, and she's a naturalized citizen who was born in Ethiopia. Uh the 3rd Congressional District is primed for a February 13th special election between former Representative Tom Swosey and Nassau County Legislator Mazi Melissa Pilip. Uh, the other thing about her is she's Israeli. 
<laughs> and again, it's one of those things that whenever I have been uh, answering charges about Israel being an apartheid state, uh, you bring up the fact that there are 160,000 Ethiopian Jews who live in Israel and are very prominent in the military and very prominent in law enforcement, particularly in law enforcement around the city of Tel Aviv. And uh, as, as to uh, this American, Ethiopian-Israeli-American former pal- paratrooper in the IDF, and that is one of the elite units and they can't have that many female paratroopers but she's one of them and the fact that she's the mother of seven she just issued uh, a statement on x saying i am honored to be chosen to run for the great new york third district it is time we stop the madness in washington and bring back strong long island values like respect for police first thing she mentioned support for israel and low taxes uh, join us and uh, again with all the stories that were phony and and dishonest that George uh, Santos told about himself uh, this lady has a lot to tell about herself Um, she again born in Ethiopia she came to Israel with her family Uh, when she was 12 because of the terrible persecution against Ethiopian Jews. She herself is an Orthodox Jew who has been a vocal supporter of Israel's uh, campaign in Gaza since the beginning of the Israel-Hamas war. She told Fox uh, Business News that the Israeli Defense Forces do what they need to do in response to protests against civilian casualties in Palestine. Philippe lived in Israel and was a paratrooper in the IDF prior to coming to the U.S. Uh, She also was uh, uh, educated at the University of Haifa and at Tel Aviv University. And uh, she has degrees in occupational therapy uh, and diplomacy and security. And... uh, uh, she, <laughs> if you just watch her on on uh, some of the televised interviews, this is a very charismatic, very dynamic candidate. And uh, I, I know that uh, Kevin McCarthy was talking uh, about trying to make the uh, Republican caucus look more diverse. Well, here you have an Ethiopian-American Orthodox Jew. This would be the first observant uh, Jewish member of the House ever. Uh, And uh, uh, you've had uh, Joe Lieberman in the Senate. But all of that is remarkable. And it's also necessary when there are other people who claim to represent uh, the Jewish community I have no idea why or how they do that other than to undermine uh, the state of Israel and Israel's fight for security. There's a story about those 100 protesters I mentioned to you who shut down traffic for hours uh, to demand a ceasefire in Gaza. They were on Seattle's University Bridge, which is really not at all far from our studios. 
this is the way that story was reported on Cairo 7 TV. They say that the United States has been giving Israel too much money over the years, and though those who shut down University Bridge tonight believe that senators like Maria Cantwell and Patty Murray have the power to call for a ceasefire because they believe that this violence needs to stop. What's happening is one of the worst calamities in our lifetime, in my lifetime. University Bridge was shut down for hours on Thursday. I-5 North, I-5 South, East, like going East, West, it was shut down everywhere. So were other major bridges across the nation. As the group Jewish Voice for Peace called on state leadership to demand a ceasefire in Gaza. We've been relentless in trying to connect with Murray and her staffers to demand the very, very bare minimum, which is a ceasefire. And they feel like their conversations with leaders like Senator Patty Murray have gone nowhere. Patty Murray, how can you pretend to be a defender of children here around the world and let this happen in our name with our dollars? But for protesters like Kate Raphael, who has lived in Gaza, she says this is about more than stopping the war. I was there as a Jew. Everybody welcomed me into their homes, and I just want them to be able to live freely and with dignity and peace. And as the protests continue, many argue the fight for peace is far from over. This is not the end. We are not going to let business go on as usual when there is a genocide happening in the name of Jewish safety and our elected officials are doing nothing. Our okay, that's uh, the voice of protesters. We're going to hear a very different voice, uh, a voice that is much more clear on uh, the situation in Israel at the moment and uh, also world affairs in general. That's the voice that belongs to Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, former U.S. attorney, federal prosecutor, and a big Springsteen fan. And, oh, yeah, he's running for president. Governor Christie joins us coming up on the MedVed Show. On the Michael Medved Show, what a pleasure to speak to Chris Christie again, uh, the former governor of New Jersey, two-term governor of New Jersey, former U.S. attorney, a Bruce Springsteen fan, hence the musical background, running for president of the United States. I know, Governor Christie, that one of the things that has been an ardent desire of yours is to uh, convince President Trump to uh, participate in debates, and if not the general all-candidates debates, uh, you'd, you'd welcome a chance for the two of you just to get together on stage. Uh, and um, what's President Trump said about uh, his willingness to do that? Uh, he is unwilling to debate with me, for certain, and I suspect with anybody else as well. Um, look, he doesn't want to defend this record. He doesn't want to have to answer for his, you know, four criminal indictments. He doesn't want to have to answer for posting on Thanksgiving morning at 2.03 a.m. Uh, a list that he said he was thankful for all the people that he hated and then listed them. 
I mean, that kind of crazy activity is stuff that he would never want to answer about on a debate stage. So, um, Did you make that list? It, although, um, you know, that particular list I did not make. Um, and I'm, and I was a little disappointed, but you know, at the end of, at, at the end of the day, I'd be happy to do a pay-per-view, um, debate with Donald Trump where people have to pay to see it and he can keep the proceeds to pay his legal fees. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm sure we're all eagerly awaiting his response. Um, one of the, uh, issues that has been coming up and it's hard to imagine how this is going to be handled by the Republican candidate, whoever that happens to be. But right now there are uh, very impassioned discussions about uh, Mifepristone, the abortion pill. Uh, Do you think that it's a good policy for Republicans to uh, try to crack down on this um, mifepristone of the what people call chemical abortions that you do with a prescription. Look, I, Michael, I think that these abortion decisions should all be made by each individual state, and that it should be a vote of the people. You know, this is a difficult and emotional issue for lots of folks. You know, I'm pro-life, but uh, you know, at the end, <clears throat> I really believe that the people of this country should make this decision. That's what we argued for 50 years in the aftermath of Roe as conservatives. Now we have it with Dobbs, and you have people like Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley who either have or said they would sign six-week abortion bans. Um, You know, I, I don't trust Congress on the issue of life. They can't pick a speaker. They can't promote you know, military officers who have earned their promotion in a timely way. Um, And we're going to trust them with the issue of life. Um, I would not sign any type of of federal ban if I were president of any kind. And I would say to you that for those who refuse to answer that question, um, people should be very suspicious of their motives. And uh, in terms of giving uh, the the rights to to every state to make that decision, uh, that would probably come out looking like increased restrictions on abortion, but you wouldn't have situations like the situation so well publicized, over-publicized, that we haven't really talked about on this show, but of the lady in, in Texas with the very troubled pregnancy who was going out of state or trying to go out of state uh, uh, on a matter of health. Yeah, look, I think if you let the states make these decisions, people are going to have a lot more confidence in what happens. And you will have a real diverse group. Look at even now in New York and New Jersey, my home state, you can have an abortion up to the ninth month under the law, something I obviously think is awful. But on the other hand, in Oklahoma, you can't have an abortion at any time unless the life of the mother is at risk. So you're going to have real divergence all across the country on this, which represents what people in those states feel about it. You've had votes in Kansas, in Ohio in particular, Michael, that are red states, but went more towards the woman's right to have an abortion. So I think all of us need to put this in the hands of the people. And that's the best way, I think, to handle this problem. And as far as Texas is concerned, 
look, I think the Texas Supreme Court was clearly wrong. All of these laws are intended to protect life, unborn life. And in Texas, um, it was clear from all the physicians who examined this woman that her fetus, her child, had a, you know, terminal disease and would either be born, stillborn, or would die within hours of when the child was born. To torture that woman to hold that pregnancy and carry it for another 18 to 19 months doesn't protect any life. And in fact, could put hers at risk. So I think the Texas Supreme Court was wrong. And I don't think we should be, you know, mealy-mouthed about this issue. On something like that, there's no protection of life there. The life is not viable um, by the own, you know, de- you know, the own uh, diagnosis of, of her physician. So I think that was a mistake. Speaking of mistakes, uh, there's continued struggle to try to put through a supplemental appropriation to provide funding for Ukraine in its uh, struggle for survival and funding for Israel and enhanced funding for border security. That seems to be jammed up in the House of Representatives. Uh, you favor that supplemental appropriation? And uh, what can be done to try to get that finished before Congress goes home for four weeks for the Christmas break? I absolutely favor that appropriation. I think we must stand with uh, Ukraine and against Russia. I saw a headline in today's Wall Street Journal that Vladimir Putin said that he is going to continue waging the war until all of his goals have been reached. Well, if we walk away from Ukraine... That's going to happen very quickly, and I think it's wrong. I think it sends a bad signal not only to Russia but to China regarding aggression and how the United States will handle aggression against our allies. On Israel, I think it's clear what happened on October 7th um, and the inhumanity that Hamas showed and continues to say they want to show in the future tells us we have to help Israel make sure that they eliminate the, the military threat as much as they can from Hamas. And on our southern border, when you have 200,000 attempted illegal crossings a month for the last 11 months, it's clear you have a problem and we need to deal with it. The way I would deal with it, Michael, is I would tell Congress they should not go home until they resolve it. I think uh, if they're not getting home to decorate the Christmas tree or celebrate with their families for the holiday, I think that'll create a sense of urgency that we need to get this matter completed. That's Governor Chris Christie. He's the author of the book, Republican Rescue, My Last Chance Plan to Save the Party and America. It uh, just came out in paperback uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, When we continue the conversation with Governor Christie, let's talk a little bit about the campaign, because right now there's so much polling that emphasizes uh, President Trump's um, hold on the nomination. I, I want to speak with Chris Christie about how he believes that hold can be weakened and uh, what it is that uh, candidates who are not Donald Trump, including himself, need to do to get their campaigns closer to uh, winning these early primaries and caucuses. We'll be right back with Governor Chris Christie on the Medved Show.
From politics to pop culture and from coast to coast, this is the Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, a few minutes more with Governor Chris Christie, uh, former governor of the state of New Jersey, a very distinguished uh, federal prosecutor who, by the way, took his job in uh, the prosecution office in uh, uh, New Jersey. Uh, I believe it was uh, like September 10th, right before the terrorist attacks. Is that right, Governor? Correct. I was nominated by President Bush on September 10th, 2001. Isn't that amazing? Okay, at this point, we are one month away. The Iowa caucuses are January 15th. Today is December 15th. Uh, what, with a month to go before the, the delegates actually start getting chosen, what's your path to victory? Well, Michael, the path to victory starts on, for us on January 23rd in New Hampshire. We are not competing in Iowa. I haven't spent a day or a dollar there. Um, we decided to focus on the first in the nation primary rather than caucus because it's an open process. Independents can vote. And we feel like it's going to be a much more complete view of what voters think in a state like New Hampshire. And so we're ready to go and compete there. Um, our path there is to make sure that we come in at least second place, I think. Um, you know, unless it's a very close third, um, we need to do very well there. Um, as we do well there, we'll then move on to Michigan, where there is another open process in the state of Michigan. That's five weeks after New Hampshire. South Carolina comes in between. Um, but, you know, that's Nikki Haley's home state. Now, despite the fact that she's down by 27 points right now to President Trump, um, I think that's a must-win for her, given that it's her home state. And so we'll we'll be on the ballot there, and we will do something. But we'll be spending most of our time after New Hampshire, then going to Michigan. And I believe at that point it may be a one-on-one race between me and Donald Trump. And then you may get that debate you're wishing for. Okay, speaking about that debate, what if um, President Trump ends up winning this nomination, as most people seem to expect that he will? And all of a sudden he picks up the phone and he asks you to be his running mate is uh, uh, to try to unite the Republican Party uh, and Republican rescue title of your book. Uh, if he makes you that offer, what do you say to him? Absolutely not. And why not? Because I could not work for someone who had said that they're willing to suspend the Constitution of the United States. I couldn't work for someone who had openly lied about the results of an election in order to try to keep himself in power. I couldn't work for someone um, who had said in legal documents that the president has no obligation to support the Constitution. I couldn't work for someone who has committed the acts that he's committed and then make the argument that a president can do whatever they want in office, uh, but aren't subject to prosecution ever. 
Um, that's not the kind of person I could loyally serve, so I wouldn't do it. Now, there's also a, a question of tone. They're, they have a new flag that they're selling uh, to support the Trump campaign that says Trump 2024, the vengeance tour. Uh, <laughs> I assume you're you're not in politics right now. You're not running for president uh, in order to achieve vengeance against anybody in particular. Um, no, in, if, in fact, in fact, Michael, um, you know the worst part of the vengeance tour and people buying those flags is the only person he'll seek vengeance for is himself. He will not stand up for the American people. He won't fight for this country. He's angry that he lost, and he is attempting now to get the presidency back to try to settle scores. And you don't have to take my word for it. Listen to himself. You know, that's what he's been saying. That's what he's continuing to say. And if he gets the presidency, I believe that's exactly what he'll do. Uh, if the economy really does take off if there's a safe soft landing as they talk about if the market continues to go up and unemployment continues to be at record lows and uh, all of that good economic news what would your emphasis be as to the republican nominee for president on why to select you over joe biden look i i think that you know president biden has shown that he's not up to the job Let's start off with that. He's physically and mentally not up to the job. Secondly, he promised to bring the country together and to govern as a moderate. Um, and instead, what he did was run hard left, run up almost as much debt as Donald Trump has run up um, over the course of his four years and put the country in an enormous hole. And lastly, he sent horrible mixed signals on foreign policy, which I think has contributed to the conflicts we have both in Ukraine and in Israel. Um, I would be a president who would not do any of that. I, I would stand with our allies. I would send clear signals against our to our adversaries around the world. I would re significantly reduce government spending that would lower inflation and lower interest rates. And I would stand up against the education establishment in this country who are not educating our K-12 students and are attempting to indoctrinate our college students. Would you attempt, as the um, uh, Biden administration has, to uh, uh, for to try to influence Israel to uh, move toward a less confrontational, a less sweeping battle plan uh, in terms of their efforts to destroy Hamas and to uh, achieve security and safety for their citizens? No, I would not. Um, I will let Israel conduct the war since Israel were the people who were attacked and murdered on October 7th. And, uh, you know, Tony Blair and the Brits did not come over here after September 11th and tell us how to conduct the war in Afghanistan. They supported us. And we owe the same level of loyalty to the people of Israel. And, look, when we have disagreements with them, which, have, which invariably happens, then we should have those disagreements in private. And give our counsel in private. But in public, there should never be any distance between us and Israel. And uh, Chris Christie, uh, you, you've already established that you're not going to be President Trump's running mate. I think it's unlikely he would have chosen you, but it's a, a 
appropriate and clear that you wouldn't want to run alongside him. If you did win the nomination, I mean, you've spent months now running for president. Have you thought about who would be an ideal running mate for you? I have. And, and you know, Michael, what I'd say is that I think you could expect that it would be someone who either currently is a governor um, or has been a governor over the course of their career. I would want someone in the vice presidency who had executive experience so that if something did happen to me, they would be prepared to take over the presidency with similar set of skills and experience that I have and that the American people had voted for. Um, I'd also want someone who um, I like, because if you don't like the person, you're not going to include them in on all the things that they should be included in as vice president. And there's a number of folks who fit that bill. And as we get closer here, I'll probably be a lot more specific. But let's get the first votes out of the way. Let's get this to a one-on-one race with Donald Trump. And then I'll not only start to talk about who my running mate would be, but also who I would ask to be in my cabinet so people can compare that to the ship of fools that Donald Trump would put together in the second term. Uh, I take it uh, Vivek Ramaswamy should not expect a cabinet appointment by you? I think Vivek should um, be ready to uh, renew his uh, his career in the private sector. <laughs> That's a very gracious way of uh, putting it. Um, the uh, uh, final uh, issue, uh, the uh, Republican Rescue, uh, which is – it actually is a very stirring book because it's full of optimism about what's possible. Uh, what would the very first day feature of a Christie presidency? First thing I'd do is send the National Guard down to the border, Michael, to help our completely overwhelmed Customs and Border Patrol officers to get control over that, uh, over that region of our country. And secondly, I would give an inaugural speech that didn't talk about American carnage, but talked about America hope and innovation and possibilities for a greater future for our children and grandchildren. Ours would be a hopeful presidency, Michael, not an angry one seeking vengeance. Chris Christie. Uh, and again, his book will give you a clearer view of his thinking. Uh, it's just released in paperback. Uh, I, I, I wish you well and appreciate uh, the way you conducted yourself and the contributions you made in the most recent debate. Uh, coming up, we're going to be talking about why progressives are being driven out politically by voters of some of the most liberal cities in America.